reasonable doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we love both Big Bird and Terry Gross and would very much like to see relatively small amounts of government spending continue to go to public broadcasting. Amen. Thank you very much. Mm. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hello. Teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. Hello. And Dr. <laughs> Professor Luke Galen. Good morning. Coming up in today's show, we get back into our Developmental Psych of Religion mini-series with some God Thinks Like You and Counter-Apologetics. A Counter-Apologetics segment, by the way, on the idea that children are evil. Having had extensive experience with children, I have to say from the get-go that I find this idea deeply plausible. (laughs) Also, some polyatheism and a props at the tail end of the show. But first, we've got some news stories. Uh, Jeremy, turns out Dan Brown was right. Jesus has a wife. Yeah. Did everybody hear this? Oh, yeah. That's what has been all over my Facebook feed for the past couple of weeks. Gloating atheists, very happy to be pointing out that uh, Jesus has a wife now. Which proves God does not exist. Yep. Which in turn proves that God doesn't exist. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the story is Karen King, a uh, historian at Harvard Divinity School, has introduced a a scrap of papyrus that has Coptic, Coptic, the language of Egyptian Christians in in, uh, the first centuries of Christianity. And there's an inscription on this on this fragment that says, Jesus said to them, my wife. My wife. The, it's, the statement is cut off right there. So the most interesting part that would follow, we, we don't have any kind of context for it. Uh, later on, there's a bit of the fragment that says, she will be able to be my disciple. And then... But the that quote may not is cut be off again. Reference to the wife. Yeah, and there's but. there's not much else in this in this scrap. But Karen King has been promoting it, and people have been getting pretty excited about it because it's the first document uh, that dates. Well, I mean, it only, it dates back to the fourth century, so it's actually really, really late mm-hmm. compared to most of our Christian mm-hmm. writings, especially those that made it into the Gospels are from the first or second century. So that gives it. Uh, gives you a sense of how old this this fragment is in comparison. But nevertheless, it would be the first text of this kind that's purporting to repeat the words of Jesus himself and where Jesus is saying he has some sort of a wife. Now, my issue with this is, first of all, the fragment says my wife, but then there's nothing else to go on mm, after that. Right. And if you actually turn to the gospel accounts that we do have, Jesus talks about his followers, he uses the metaphor of, uh, of the bride for mm-hmm. the church, mm-hmm. and himself as the bridegroom 
all the time. I did not think uh, that. Using a marriage metaphor in connection between him and his followers is a pretty well-established thing in the Gospels. Right. So my wife dot, 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 dot doesn't mean anything to me, you know, coming out of this fragment. It doesn't mean that he's actually saying he has a wife. Well, and you have to look at the context. The, the quote is, take my wife. And we can only assume, please, yeah, is what yeah, came please, after. Please yeah. is the, the follower there. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's really not a lot you can determine from the context of this of this piece because we don't have the context. Right. So even if it was a, a, a very early gospel uh, among sure. the ones that we consider canonical, even if it was one of those, there's not really much we can draw from it. The second is, of course, it's, it's late date. There are, of course, all sorts of non-canonical Gospels about Jesus. There's no reason to believe these really trace back to anything the historical Jesus said. And by the time we're getting into the 4th century, I think uh, uh, any plausibility that this is traceable back to the historical Jesus seems – it seems to me to be – not very plausible. I mean, it's difficult enough with the Gospels, which were written earlier than that, See, to that, say that that <clears throat> traces back to a historical. That's Jesus. what I find interesting. Was more so I didn't make much of it either. But when I saw all the defenses coming up from from the Christians on the on the chats and things like that, where people mm-hmm. are like, "Well, this doesn't mean." I mean, somebody could have just written anything, and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, "Yes, <laughs> yes, sir, somebody indeed could have written anything." That is a <laughs> relevant yeah. point. Yes, and and maybe that's the real point here. What what is interesting about this is not is not that Jesus may have had a wife and that the that the early Christian church tried to cover this up. What is interesting is it just repeats what we already know and that there were many different conceptions of Jesus mm. in the first centuries of the Christian era that they wrote into their texts their own viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Of course, and uh, this this is just furthering that understanding. It's a if there's a real issue here, it's how hard it is to figure out what the historical Jesus ha- now, did he exist actually off? taught. So if they use years like that, I mean, then you're you're t- like it's the same thing with the Gospel of Thomas when we've covered this on the show before. Like when you get people saying, "Well, that was written a little bit late." Uh, there, okay, how about Gospel of John? Like where's the where's the line here? The, the evangelicals love Gospel of John, and that's, right. c- that contains as much bizarre stuff as some of the other ones, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, More bizarre. I mean, it's, it's – it's, while the rest are called the synoptic. What is, exactly. What, is, what are your standards there? A, a further thing, even the idea of Jesus having a wife is not a new, new thing. In fact, uh, Dr. King was – she brought up this point in, a, uh, in an article in the New York Times. She says here – There was, we already know, a controversy in the second century over whether Jesus was married. And it was caught up with a debate about whether Christians should marry and have sex. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you read, for example, the texts we do have in the New Testament, some of the very earliest that we get are the epistles of Paul, where Paul is actively encouraging Christians not to get married. Yeah, because the end is nigh, right? What's that? The end is nigh. Yeah, well, it it was in this context of, yeah, the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And... um, and Paul says, you know, if you're tempted into sexual sin then and you really need a wife for physical reasons, then I guess go ahead and do it. But he says, I would prefer most Christians stay like me, stay celibate, 
and focus on promoting this gospel. And probably kind of gay. Personally, I'd find a married gospel much more interesting to read because then you'd have these, you'd have scenes like from everybody else's domestic life. Did you remember to bring the wine home? <laughs> oh, no. What? Yes. How am I supposed to do my cool trick? <laughs> everybody yes, loves Jesus. Yeah, key the terrible Debra. father-in-law to deal with there. You know? How could I track mud in when I'm walking on air? <laughs> So that's our loss that historically. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyways, there. so yes, of course, there was this debate over marriage in the early church. Uh, of course, it would be great to have Jesus to chime in on that debate. Uh, and, uh, and Along apparently, with gay marriage and abortion and all the other things that he didn't yeah, have anything to say about. Apparently, there were a few Christians in the fourth century who decided to make him chime in on on that debate, uh, we bring this uh, this story up not because we actually think it's an important one. We think it's not important, but mm-hmm. it's amazing to me how many atheists who may not be very familiar with biblical scholarship or the Bible have been uh, circulating this story kind of with this this triumphant attitude as you know, take that Christians. And really, this this doesn't uh, this fragment doesn't amount to much of anything. Uh, in fact, right now, there might be reason to think it's forged. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. For a while, it was looking good. Uh, uh, Karen King, upon releasing this, she had she had shown several experts this fragment of papyrus, and uh, it was written in Coptic, uh, the Coptic of the 4th century. Not mm. only was the ink faded, but even in the tears where the, where the fragment had ripped off, from the rest of the papyrus, they found traces of ink in those tears. And so all of this was looking really good for the Mm. authenticity of the scrap. But this was before they had, uh, she had let, you know, the wider academic community look at it. This was just a few experts. Now that more people have gotten a chance to look at it, they're pointing out that there's issues with the grammar. Uh, At least to some, it looks as if this might have been a poor attempt to duplicate the grammar of the time. Uh, and, and so a little spin-off story on this. The Smithsonian Channel had prepared a documentary on this, and they were billing it as one of the greatest discoveries ever uh, made. Really? Yeah. And now they're deciding to uh, – they were, they were going to release this documentary, I think, this weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they decided to hold off because of they're getting these uh, the reports that it could be forged. Now, uh, kudos to them on holding off. Yeah. Right. But they shouldn't have rushed this to the television to begin with. This is exactly yeah. the same thing we saw in biblical studies with that James uh, Oshuary. And the Judas one. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Gospel of Judas. Right. It becomes an embarrassment because National Geographic, the Smithsonian, other groups like that, they rush these things to the press. They build them up to the sky mm-hmm. because anything dealing with Jesus sells. I mean, Time Magazine knows this. Every year they have their little Jesus edition, right? Mm-hmm. So you slap Jesus on the cover of something, you're going to get people watching it. You're going to get people reading it. But they rush these things off to the press before there's good science, before it's been critiqued. Uh, and that ends up making skeptics like us look bad. Yes. Because and, and skeptics ev- make skeptics look bad, too, by by gloating about stuff like this. Like, oh, Jesus had a wife. So, I mean, what does that prove? I mean, how does that... How is this an argument against Christianity or anything else? I mean, skeptics are are doing a plenty good job of making themselves look like jerks by jumping all over yeah, stuff like it, this. It makes it makes it easier for the any of the fundamentalists to be dismissive of biblical studies. They feel that it, it it's 
founded on sloppy standards. And yeah, and so when they start complaining about that, I, you know, I get maybe this is personal annoyance on my <laughs> on my side, but uh, I hate getting into arguments where I have to admit the other side's right. <laughs> right. And they bring up examples yeah. like this, and I have to go, yeah, you know, I want to defend biblical <laughs> scholarship because there's some good research that Christians have to confront. But I can't deny that uh, sometimes crazy stuff like uh, this happens. So Jesus' uh, wife fragment, uh, yeah. not a big deal. <laughs> no. So lesson learned. We're going to call this the Jesus episode. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of rare documents uncovering dirty little secrets about people, uh, this one's definitely legit. There's a letter written by Albert Einstein that expresses uh, clear and, and strong opinions about religion. And the good news is you can take the original letter home with you for a mere $3 million. Oh, sweet. Starting bid, by the way. Um, uh, you can uh, donate to um, the PayPal account. Yeah, yeah. You know what? <laughs> if we get... If which, we, which begins our fall fun drive. <laughs> we get the $3 million starting bid, and we will take it from there How. However far your donations will uh, will take us. So start with three million. If we don't make three million, we'll just have to have a pizza party or something with a lot of friends. Um, anyway, this letter, which is um, going to be auctioned off, actually as of now, October eighth through the eighteenth of twenty twelve, um, this document is available for auction, and it. Uh, it reveals yet again, <laughs> despite people who keep saying Einstein believed in God, this says pretty clearly his opinions on religion. Quote, and this is from the, the auction site that's um, offering it. Obviously, it's translated from German, but it says, quote, The word God is for me nothing more than the expression and product of human weaknesses. The Bible, a collection of honorable but still primitive legends, which are nevertheless pretty childish. No interpretation, no matter how subtle, can, for me, change this. These subtleized interpretations are highly manifold according to their nature and have almost nothing to do with the original text. For me, the Jewish religion, like all other religions, is an incarnation of the most childish superstitions. And the Jewish people to whom I gladly belong and with whose mentality I have a deep affinity have no different quality for me than all other people. As far as my experience goes, they are also no better than other human groups, although they are protected from the worst cancers by lack of power. Otherwise, I cannot see anything chosen about them. Jeez, oh, but, but that passage just could be interpreted yeah, so exactly. many different ways. I, I mean, I've, I actually was looking at an apologist <laughs> website where they were saying, "Well, yeah, but you're not you're not interpreting it the right way." Context, context, context. Yeah. Um, but usually, what they'll do is they'll take his previous statement that people would rely on as the "I am not in any sense." An atheist statement. There was yes. a thing where I think he was asked actually by somebody to clarify his religious views, and he gave a very sort of step by step. And so you always see that when cut and pasted that he says he's not an atheist, but then he goes on to say he doesn't believe in a personal God. His view mm-hmm. of God is the laws of the universe, like physical right. laws. Spinoza's God. Spinoza's, yeah. So he, he even references Spinoza in this letter. In so, fact, so this will be another one where even though he's to, to you know people like us, incredibly clear and. Uh, affirms what we what he said previously. They're going yeah. to do the same thing where they take 
different parts of it and, and, and downplay others. And it, it is so silly because it's just it's just a battle to get some iconic thinker on their side, right? I mean, really, in the end, Einstein was a brilliant guy. Yes. Especially when it came to physics. Right. But whether or not Einstein believes in God shouldn't settle the matter for any of us. It happened with Stephen um, Hawking, too, when earlier yeah. he was kind of like, well, maybe something kicked off the whole Big Bang thing, and then yeah. they were quote him. And then when he recently came out and said, no, there's no, there's not evidence of God. Yeah. Then where were, you know? Then they disappeared. So people pull these things out to, it's the fight to over the get physics. credibility over their over their beliefs. Hey, look, this intelligent person believed it. So yeah. apparently, it's not irrational to believe in God if Einstein believed in it. Right, right. And Einstein's lack of belief in God no more disproves God than Jesus having a wife disproves God. So, um, but it is. I mean, it's a it's a cool letter. Yeah, it's a nice retort to those who would like to do this kind of cherry-picking with quotes. and The letter I would have preferred to have from Einstein is a unified field theory. <laughs> but there wasn't any letter from Einstein on that, was there? That we know of. <laughs> I, I wish he would have pulled a Mark Twain, though. How do you mean? Well, I mean, there wasn't enough talk about wading waist-deep in blood and of oh, victims. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mark Twain's stuff is so scandalous, he had the presence of mind to go like, uh, wait to publish this exactly. until 100 years after I'm dead. <laughs> yes. Maybe maybe 100 years after Einstein's dead, we'll get the, you know, we'll get, get the, the unsanitized version. Yeah. version. yeah. Uh, something to look forward to. Einstein unplugged. <laughs> Now, uh, of course, Einstein is not the only one with blasphemous ideas. Jeremy, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the latest in blasphemy-related news? Well, yeah, we just wanted to give an honorable mention to Blasphemy Rights Day, which we blew right past on the podcast without even realizing it was going on. I, I think uh, I think everyone knows that there's still a need for Blasphemy Rights Day, especially since we've been watching the recent uh, the recent attacks on these embassies worldwide, mm-hmm. uh, thanks to that that uh, YouTube trailer that and we talked French about cartoons that came out just recently. As oh well. yes, yeah. I wanted to bring up two real quick cases of outrage at blasphemy. Both dealing with Facebook. Facebook is kind of the connective theme on here. It's the hub of blasphemy. Yeah, it's it's where I go for most of my blasphemy mm-hmm. needs, to be Best honest. Best place. One example uh, is coming to us from the Muslim world. This is in uh, southern Bangladesh. There's been uh, recent outbreaks of violence, apparently a mob of over 25,000 people, which sounds uh, – I'm not sure Sounds I believe that figure. <laughs> yeah. 25,000 people is a lot of people. Well, of course, Muslims always gather in enormously inflated numbers. Although yeah. Bangladesh is one of the most densely populated countries in the world, well, so that, maybe they're all kind of just chock-a-block there waiting to gather into mobs. Yeah. <laughs> well, or maybe you just can't tell where the mob begins and the normal foot traffic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was actually the it was iPod a release. problem. It was, uh, it was next to the iPod <laughs> store, so... Uh, but yes, however big this mob is, I'm pretty sure that report was exaggerated. Reports coming out are saying that at least five Buddhist temples were destroyed. Uh, dozens of Buddhist homes in Ramu damaged. At least a hundred houses. Yeah, yeah, actually. Which could also be an exaggeration. They're putting the figure at at as high as a hundred houses were damaged and, uh, you know, burnt, burnt down to the ground. Witnesses to the, to the spectacle said that it looked as if a cyclone had just gone through the Jeez. area. Jeez. 
like some of these uh, some of these temples, eleven temples were destroyed. Uh, they're they're wooden temples a lot of times, and some of them date back hundreds of mm-hmm. years. So yeah. uh, it, it's you know it's another one of those cases where it's it's not only religious intimidation and violence. They're destroying important art and architecture and, and everything else. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, there, there, I'm not there's saying, a lot to yeah. be learned from these things um, as I'm, well as the, the pure aesthetics of these. I'm not saying a wooden temple is more important than a life. It's just right. uh, we, we do need to t- count the material toll mm-hmm. like, like, like we did with the, in Afghanistan when the Taliban was blowing up those Buddha statues. Absolutely. You know, We're never going to get those back. But, uh, but yeah, oh, I kind of failed to mention why this is even going on. It boils – what it boils down to is a resident of this area posted something negative about the Quran on Facebook. That's it. One guy. As far as we know, they didn't target him, but somebody saw this this post on Facebook and – Always a rational and measured response to any form of blasphemy against Islam. Now, none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. We always have to remember that. And there have been cultural tensions between the Buddhist minority there and the Muslim majority for quite a while. In fact, there was even some violence back in June. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so let's not pretend that this just happened out of nowhere. There's always a political context to it, but uh, but still, there's a strong religious component as well. You better not defriend Muhammad because this is what happens. <laughs> yeah, don't defriend Muhammad. And if you post Muhammad. something, you like it. Oh wow, that was the that was the most beautiful, elegant post I've ever seen, especially coming from someone who's illiterate <laughs> and has no profile picture <laughs> and has no profile picture. It must be proof. Uh, <laughs> well, anyways, we've come to kind of expect this thing in the in the Muslim world. Yes, but we have a case of blasphemy that might surprise some. Coming from the cradle of Western civilization. Yeah, right right in Greece, the the birthplace of democracy, we have a man who was arrested again for a Facebook post. This time, uh, it's a satirical Facebook page. Which is pretty funny. It's a great page, too. <laughs> Um, satirizing, um, and help me out with the name here, um, it, he's a, a Greek Orthodox monk. A, a, a dead Greek Orthodox monk, Elder Pasios. Yeah, I think something I think that's something to that Pasios. Um, He's recently dead. Yes, uh, yes. Pasios, uh, I think maybe. All um, right. He died back in '94. But this uh, this man who's been arrested did a parody page um, called the Elder Pastios the Pastafarian. <laughs> it's just a bunch of spaghetti. It's, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's nothing more than a play on words. It's a flying spaghetti monster um, uh, mashup with this um, Greek Orthodox monk. But it has a beard, and I think that's, a, <laughs> that's what's important to point out. Yeah, yeah. But uh, um, he was uh, very well known in the Greek Orthodox world and in Greece. And this site um, satirizes him and some of his teachings in in simple, like, pun fashion by you know combining yeah. his name with pasta but that's that's the other thing the article mentions it's there's no there's no vulgar language nope there, there aren't insults against the christian faith even i mean there, i mean there well there is a baby jesus be. raptor on his lap 
Oh, okay. There is a baby. Uh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> but but the the point is, it's really just the visual gag. Yes. And right. the yes. the language pun. That's that's all there is to it. And uh, it's not even really deep satire. Somebody decided to call the cops <laughs> because in Greece, it's one of the the uh, few countries, Western countries, I suppose, where there are blasphemy laws could conceivably be imprisoned for up to two years. Yeah. Uh, for Which is surprising because they have more likes on Facebook than we do. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but, yeah, he is uh, he's looking at up to two years in prison for doing uh, cheap pasta puns, visual puns on Facebook. And, I mean, this just goes to show you how ridiculous blasphemy laws are. It's probably a ploy for shameless political gain because uh, the person, the member of parliament who, of the Greek parliament who actually initiated this investigation belongs to uh, the Golden Dawn Party, which is one of the neo-fascist parties that recently got elected. Mm. Neo-fascist makes it sound so much gentler than just fascist. Yeah, those are the old fascists. We're, We're the, the new, new fa- fascists. The new face of fascism, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and their uh, their popularity has been rising. And of course, I mean, we're, we're familiar in the U.S. of how one of the great ways to bring supporters to your base is to play upon your your religious strengths mm-hmm. and uh, whip people up against the heretics. This hasn't actually gone to trial yet, and uh, some people are thinking even with this blasphemy law, it's still going to be covered under the free speech provisions of either the Greek Constitution mm-hmm. or definitely the Human Rights Declaration of the European Union. So, right, right. so it, it's probably unlikely that this guy will actually see jail time, but it's it's just a sad example of another blasphemy law in yeah. a place that we would think would be inconceivable. Even, even if he doesn't get prosecuted, you know how much money he's going to have to spend on defense lawyers? Right. Mm-hmm. How silly this is for just posting something on Facebook. And, and, and blasphemy laws, again, blasphemy is a victimless crime. The only people who are being hurt by these laws are here we have a, a, an artist, you know, a, a satirist who's being punished. If your god is so small that he can't stand to take an insult, then uh, maybe your god needs to grow up a little bit. You can't well, overestimate and, and the also, while I never am for these <laughs> blasphemy laws, usually they're, they take the form of doing personal emotional harm to right, somebody, right. you know, or perhaps inciting uh, a, a group to hatred. Okay, so maybe if you're on the street corner, you know, maybe if you're a Nazi walking into a Jewish area and, and offending people, mm-hmm. maybe I could see some sort of emotional harm going on that would require legal action. Right. I still don't think that's the case. But we're talking about something in Facebook that you have to deliberately find. Yeah. You have to seek out this profile and get to it before you're going to be offended. I mean, if that's not protected speech in Greece, I I don't know what would be. Well, um, an instance of what some of our conservative friends might call blasphemy happened here in the United States when a federal court upheld the terrifying contraceptive mandate, which Mm. says that employers must provide free contraception or uh, must provide contraceptive care as part of the health care they offer their employees. 
this is an awesome, awesome ruling. The, we shouldn't get too optimistic about it for reasons I'll share in just a moment. Right. But yes, uh, so far it's the, it's it's a very yeah. good ruling that's been handed. The down charge so from Catholic bishops and other religious right re- religious right a- activists has been that this is this is violating people's religious freedoms, mm-hmm. right? They might be giving money to support health care programs that will be allowing services that they personally find uh, they, they personally object to because of their religious convictions. That's the idea, how this could be a violation of religious freedom. And, uh, and they've Ameri- been appealing to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Yes, or yes. The RFRA. Right. Trying to yeah. – Mm-hmm. Trying to say that this is a, in violation of that. Uh, Americans United for Separation of Church and State on their press release put it short and simple. Religious freedom means the right to make decisions for yourself, not for others. Mm-hmm. The case that made the federal court here, it, it involved uh, O'Brien Industrial Holding. Uh, they make ceramic material for mm-hmm. industrial uses. Uh, but the owner, Frank O'Brien, is a devout Catholic. So he didn't want to provide a health care package that would allow contraceptive use uh, for his employees. And uh, the ACLJ, Pat Robertson, <laughs> the, the shadowy, ACLJ. bizarro version mm-hmm. of the ACLU, they, uh, they represented O'Brien in court. And here was the decision. I'm just going to read portions mm-hmm. from the U.S. District Judge Carol Jackson. So, quote, uh, Frank O'Brien is not prevented from keeping the Sabbath, from providing a religious upbringing from his children, or from participating in a religious ritual such as communion. Instead, plaintiffs remain free to exercise their religion by not using contraceptions, <laughs> contraception and by discouraging employees from using contraception. And then later she adds to this, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is a shield, not a sword. It protects individuals from substantial burdens on religious exercise that occur when the government coerces actions one's religion forbids or forbids forbids actions one's religion requires. It is not a means to force one's religious practices upon others. The RFRA does not protect against the slight burden on religious exercise that arises when one's money circuitously flows to support the conduct of other free exercise-wielding individuals who hold religious beliefs that differ from one's own. I love that last line. That last, line. Right. That last yeah. line cuts down to what this is really about. There is one other line here that I, that I wanted to, to get in. This court rejects the proposition that requiring indirect financial support of a practice from which, from which plaintiff himself abstains, according to his religious principles, constitutes a substantial burden on the plaintiff's religious exercise. It's great, but, but <laughs> cautioning against too much optimism is that there was a federal court in Colorado that earlier this year, mm-hmm. the court, the Colorado court reached an opposite conclusion. Mm-hmm. Which means that, that the they're two not giving will. <laughs> we have precedent going two different ways here. Yep. Uh, so yeah, uh, we'll, we'll have to see how this develops in, in future. Cases. Luckily, if it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, where we have a bunch of really open-minded uh, separationists, uh, separation of church and state, <laughs> who have no bias whatsoever towards the Catholic position, it should go really well yeah. for the defeating of uh, of the ACLJ. Yeah. But I, I'm uh, not worried, especially uh, especially when I learn that uh, so many of our Supreme Court justices recently attended a, a Catholic mass. It, it, it doesn't. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure they're all impartial and aren't going to be swayed at all. 
Yes, which, yes. Oh, incidentally, let's talk about that real quick. Sure. Um, this has been going on for a while. The I red just, mass. Yeah, the red mass. Um, which sounds like a communist thing to it, me. Or, or like something you don't want to find in your underwear. <laughs> <laughs> or, but if you look at pictures or of the or growing on your back or, growing, or something yeah. like that. I think that. somebody yeah. showed pictures of this on the internet. They have a picture of all the, the people wearing their red cloaks and vestments along with one from one of the Star Wars movies where they have the, the Empire <laughs> people. Oh, the Red Guards. Honestly, the, uh, the indistinguishable. <laughs> indistinguishable awesome. which was which. The Empire versus the Catholic Church. Well, if you're like me and you've you've never heard about this until now, uh, the Red Mass is a special church service that's uh, led by the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. And they do it every year, the first Monday in October before the new uh, court term takes place. And they make sure to invite many of the Supreme Court justices, and often several of them go, uh, for example, the most recent one was attended by Chief Justice John Roberts, Justice Stevens, Scalia, Thomas, Kennedy, and Kagan all showed up at this event. Hmm. And what happens is they uh, they do their little service and then they harp on political issues. Americans United construes it as a kind of lobby for the wow. Supreme Court. Uh, invite them there and then um, – uh, evangelize them and and push pr- push the Catholic anti birth control agenda. Apparently, they're doing their job. Really, the red ma- the one thing we can say about the red mass is uh, you're unlikely to find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Yeah. Well, again, it's nothing illegal that's going on. It's, no. it's just frustrating to to see and people throw around their religious well, because this way. The, their message is heard loud and clear. Uh, five of the nine justices are Catholic. Is that right by my calculation? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. And then, but even some of the non-Catholics attend this. Yeah. You know, probably just out of pressure. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is Jewish, but she used to go to these things all the time too. Yeah. And they started harping on abortion so much that she ended up not attending. So good for her. Yeah. I say we turn from the evil that is the Galactic Empire to the evil of our youth. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter apologetics. Okay, so this part two of our uh well, what seems now the fall evolutionary psych series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've gone from summer genocide to fall evolutionary psych. That's, that's nice. So in episode 105, Born Believers, we uh, we went through uh, Justin Barrett's book and, and we we decided that a strong case can be made for the claim that our brains are structured in such a way that they seem to be primed for to receive certain cultural concepts, uh, such as immaterial minds and... and uh, interpret events as happening for a purpose. And so these concepts like gods or spirits, which are typical fare for established religions, are also very much at home within the human brain. Now, if you remember near the end of that discussion, we talked about how Justin Barrett, being a proper functionalist, argues that these systems and beliefs that they form should be treated as innocent until proven guilty. Mm. And he means that uh, that these should be believed absent any defeaters. Um, After all, he argues, uh, it is these same systems that give rise to our attributing minds to other people and believing that uh, the, the world wasn't just created five minutes ago with the appearance of age and of, of memories, right? These kinds yeah. of very properly yeah. basic beliefs that uh, we might not have uh, great arguments for 
uh, we still think of as rationalist holding. Hmm. Um, so, so we should just trust our intuitions that biology has fit us with until we find we should. Right, hmm. right. And so what he's done, obviously, here is he's, he's shifted the burden of proof. According to Barrett, it is the atheist who needs to provide defeaters for theism uh, if his non-belief is to be justified. Mm-hmm. Now, Barrett, Barrett avoided the language of calling this the census divinitatis, uh, that Calvinist notion, or it's not just a Calvinist notion, but uh, I think it was John Calvin that coined the phrase, mm-hmm. uh, this idea of a sense of the divine that we're all born with. Of course, this would play into the whole notion of proper functionalism because it would be the idea that we have certain mental faculties that if they perform reliably, we should trust them. So some – Barrett might not have made this argument himself, but other apologists were picking up on all that uh, developmental psych data and saying this is the census communis that we're looking at, agent detection, uh, beings with super knowledge. This is all evidence of the census divinitatis, that we really do have this faculty which helps us to see God. Now, we pointed out very briefly at the end of the last episode why we think that's not a compelling argument. For me, it mostly has to do with the fact that the types of beliefs that we can say children are predisposed to appears to be a byproduct of other cognitive processes that are going on in the brain. These are, uh, these, these are children developing the ability to tell that the content of their minds is not the same as the content of other people's minds, mm-hmm. to know that people act independently of their own volition, to be able to notice intention in the environment, and that, that all, these, uh, all these systems to some degree are hyperactive in a young child, and experience gradually teaches them to refine uh, those concepts and to, uh, and to apply them more properly. That's why with a little bit of education, a uh, little bit of age, we see most of these tendencies go away. All of this is, I think, you know, again, suggesting that biological predisposition to certain beliefs is not indicating God implanted this uh, this as a faculty. In fact, it operates in quite different ways than you would expect uh, a godly given sense of the divine. For example, remember we talked about uh, uh, children do have this idea of super knowledge, that some agents can possess super knowledge, but they don't apply it just to gods or spirits. They apply it to their own mothers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They apply it to their superpowers are applied to their own fathers. Even their imaginary friends have these same notions as God. So Mm -hmm. my question is, is if this is the census divinitatis, uh, why did God put into us such a broken... Such terrible aim. Yeah. It seems to push people away from true belief. I mean, your mom and dad aren't omniscient. Neither is your imaginary friend. You don't have imaginary friends. Right. It seems to be pushing in the other direction of true belief. And it also leads to all of the other religions in the world, too. Yeah, and of course, any any Muslim, uh, any person of a different faith could evoke the census divinitatis, too, and bring up the same mm-hmm. evidence to back up their claims. Yeah. So... Uh, Right, so it's it's showing that look the same experiments that that show that the naturalness of these tendencies also show that they're extremely unreliable at doing what's so important for the proper functionalist, which is uh, being aimed at true belief. They want they want to show that our faculties render reliably true beliefs, and uh, all this data would seem to suggest the opposite. Before this developmental psych data was popularized, a, another argument 
I've seen against the census divinitatis was in uh, Stephen Matson's paper, The Divine Hiddenness and the Demographics of Theism, where uh, he brought up an argument against the census divinitatis just from demographic data, <laughs> looking at um, – there's a great summary of this on the Exapologist blog. The argument in a nutshell is that the census divinitatis, if it's an innate capacity that functions in all human beings, then it should be distributed pretty evenly, right? That's what innate capacities tend to do. Right. They're in our brains, so they should be cross-cultural. Uh, and uh, But the kind of belief that's supposed to come out of the census divinitatis is very unevenly distributed. So, for example um, – Matson points out Saudi Arabia has 26 million people and 95% of them are theists. But Thailand has 65 million people and only five of them are theists. Five total or five percent? Five percent. Five, five oh, people. Okay. Right. Sorry. <laughs> we found the five they Thai They have a theists. bowling team. <laughs> the Smiths, uh, they're, they're not theists. <laughs> This is a what Matson calls is a geographical patchiness. It's it's simply not what we would expect if this census divinitatis was true. Now uh, the Christian objection, uh, even Platinga got in on this, was to say, well, okay, it, from the Christian worldview, the census divinitatis should not work universally. Human beings are sinful creatures. Our sense of God has been shattered by sin. And we shouldn't expect everyone to suddenly follow and obey the true God. Um, Which doesn't address the so objection. Yeah, so sinfulness is now geographically patchy. Is. Exactly. It kind the of pushes of it back. And the virtuous people of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's the point, as Matson points out. It's, it's not that theistic belief isn't universal. It's the distribution. Right. Or I'll quote it from him. Why has God bestowed restorative grace so unevenly? and contributed to a pattern that coincidentally social scientists say they can explain entirely of ter- in terms of culture. And so to me, this is the real argument against theists who are trying to evoke this developmental psych data as some sort of proof that we have a sense of the divine. Data, as we saw last week, can be explained much better by a naturalistic understanding yeah. of the situation, why we evolved these capacities in the first place. The irregularities in the data cannot be explained by the theist's thesis. And when we look at this demographic data of, of the distribution of religions, it's the same thing. It appears that God, if he really did give us a sense of divine, made, wanted to make it look like he didn't. So you're saying this is better explained by uh, research and science than it is by simply saying magic? <laughs> in, huh. in, a, in a way. Interesting though, though idea. I'm, I'm making it as an appeal to the best explanation. It's a right. criterion yes, of simplicity. You could always have – they could always just say, well, God, for some reason, uh, unknown to us, prefers these people in this particular mm-hmm. geography than, than these yeah. other people over here. But, of course, that's just hopelessly ad hoc. That's what yes. they did back in the species debate with Darwinian theories that God – he wanted – emus on South Pacific Island (laughs) and not in Nebraska. And look, there they are. It's it's not a question whether or not they can make up an ad hoc proposition or find one in their ancient traditions uh, to try to shore up their idea. It's it's what explains the data, what fits the data best. The naturalistic hypothesis here fits all of the data and doesn't have to – there's no quirky or bizarre feature that needs to be explained away. There's only 
uh, covers a very small portion of the data, and it's loaded with problems. We could take this further. Uh, if the Bible is true about human beings and how they develop, then we should see evidence of that in, in other areas of childhood development. So I don't know about you guys, but I've heard from evangelicals that uh, because the Bible, uh, well, at least if we assume the doctrine of original sin, that um, children coming from just pure, just being the human nature should kind of express a kind of uh, more evil, a more general evil disposition than than your typical human adult because they're yet to have been contaminated by our wanting to raise them up properly, right, with uh, a proper sense of, of biblical instruction, right, because they're coming, there's, there's no... Because they have there. original sin, but they right. don't have the positive... They don't have the proper raising of a Christian yeah. household, right? I got confused there for just a second, too, because you said contaminated. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Oh, there's Wrong. your perspective coming out. Because <laughs> <laughs> they haven't been contaminated by religion yet. In common terms, all children are born like the omen child. <laughs> right, right, when right. When I shove you over a balcony All for you, Damien. Um, all for you. And so this is obviously a strong motivation for spanking. This is a large justification for this kind of child-rearing. And so they see that the you know when when a child goes in into the sandbox and pushes another child over and takes their toy, mm-hmm. they see that as as just a a perfect arti- articulation of like the the worst of human depravity. You know, we would never see an adult do that, or at least the general population of adults, right? Right. Only, only criminals just, and toddlers behave that, that right, way. Right, right. Yeah. And so that's their argument that this is kind of some decent empirical evidence for the doctrine of original sin. And they're right to a, a limited sense that this could be seen as, as evidence for that, um, in the sense that if original sin is true, a higher degree of selfishness in children should be a matter of course. It flows naturally from the hypothesis. It's certainly not inconsistent with the concept of, of a sinful nature, at least. So we can call this the problem of evil babies. Baby <laughs> edition. <laughs> but the sinful nature isn't just about the actions. It's about the inner nature, not necessarily whether or not it is expressed. Uh, John Calvin writes in, the, in his Institutes on the Christian Religion, he says, quote, Even infants bear the condemnation with them from their mother's womb, for though they have not yet brought forth the fruits of their own iniquity, they have the seed enclosed within themselves. Uh, indeed, their whole nature is a seed of sin, Thus, it cannot be but hateful and abominable to God. Such great positive messages you get from religion. <laughs> so whether or not the, the, the children actually display these behaviors yeah. is irrelevant. Whether or not they actually act evil, right. they are evil. So is this the, the tea in the tulip of total depravity we, that we covered <laughs> yeah, before? The, pretty the, much. The first yeah. component of the tulip Calvinism? Now, now, of course, this doesn't bode well for their argument because... A sinful nature now is consistent with any observation about the general behavior of children. Yeah, it's completely unfalsifiable. <laughs> right. So whether children appear to act gen- generally evil in ways is, is no longer relevant. In an, in an explanation that explains every possibility isn't, of course, an explanation at all. <laughs> right. Um, it ceases to have any real explanatory scope, actually. Didn't they explain it like if it's a tainted aspect, like the analogy that's always explained to me is that if you have poison, a drop of poison in a glass of wine, it doesn't mean that all the wine is poison, but that it's spread throughout right. it so they're that not, it's they're suffused not, uh, with poisonness. They're not absolutely depraved. It's just that every part, how they describe part, I don't know, but every mm-hmm. part of it is is 
has depravity in it. Clearly unfalsifiable. Um, Right. And so remember in in episode 105, we said that babies begin to show signs of an early theory of mind as early as nine months. And I think that this is that this is interesting. I think this that this can be used as an argument against uh, original sin. Uh, they also show a preference for some one explanations over some thing explanations. And we talked about how these tendencies generally fade as they grow older. Now, obviously, this is an oversimplification, but this should do for now. So anyway, I came up with this little argument, uh, an argument from promiscuous teleology. It isn't a slam dunk, arg- dunk argument, but I think that something like this could be seen as a, as a possible t- defeater for the claims that developmental psychology actually supports the, the sense of the divine Premise one, if original sin is true, then we should expect children to be generally more evil than adults and to be able to only slowly improve their moral character with proper moral conditioning. Premise two, to the degree that a person is evil, to that degree they will deny or suppress overarching teleology as it points to a creator God that they may be held accountable to. Uh, I see. Hmm. Premise three, however, it is when persons are children or when they are, their thinking is more childlike that they are more sensitive to overarching teleology, that they prefer someone explanations over something explanations. Therefore, the psych data is it serves as an undercutting defeater. Uh, essentially, the argument is saying that, look, given the assumption of original sin, we should expect evil behavior from children, sure, but we should also expect a complete denial or some, a suppression of immaterial minds and of overarching teleology at a young age. And because this is the complete opposite of what we see from the actual data, this serves as a defeater. That's my little argument. I just this is the first time I've heard it, so I'm trying to think of possible critiques. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I guess people would probably challenge you on that premise that uh, children children should deny God uh, as an expression of their of their sinful nature at a at a young age. Uh, hmm. I would think maybe one possible response to that would be they would bring up Romans and talk about how God for Romans a time 18, right? is seeking people. after them and then it's, if they stay disobedient long enough they might abandon god will abandon them over to their to their sinful nature so i think somebody hmm. might be able to use a, a biblical yeah, text to that is a possibility not to be a buzzkill just yeah. trying to imagine Jeez. Jeez, <laughs> just trying to imagine potential critiques right 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 I, it does it does seem odd that at at their youngest the, the suffer the not divine. the babes they're the most the most sensitive to the divine and yet that uh, they're also the most sensitive to the evil. Yeah, right. yeah, and that divine content There's often a... often has blasphemous <laughs> implications. <Right. laughs> but still, looking at the morality of children and and how one should raise them if they are a bunch of sinners is a is a, is an interesting topic in and of itself. Well, Dobson says spank them, so that's cool, yeah, right? Spank them because they're willful children. They might be following their own will rather than following the will of their father. If only we had some sort of data to illuminate this question. Oh, wait. We do have empirical data on these Captain Data is here. (laughs) I hope you brought a chart, a visual one. (laughs) (laughs) There are, as you would imagine, uh, a plethora of data on children and morality, it's actually a big hot topic right now, is to see, you know, how now that we have these ways of measuring things like we talked about with Barrett's book of theory of mind, people have also looked at proto-morality in children, too. Uh, Ways to measure, that is, whether they are inherently deprived and they want to just grab a a toy knife and stab you in your toy heart until Mm. they're old enough to get a real one. 
But um, my daughter does does like to run around the house and wave things and kill people with them. So uh, if, I, I'm okay with this theory so yeah, far. Yeah, but you know the the, sh- the shit they watch at your house. <laughs> well, you know. Her name is Belfry. <laughs> yeah, that's true. She is, it, it, she is the chooser of the slain. I guess it's her right. You can sit on Daddy's lap. We're going to watch Saw Marathon this weekend. That's a buzzsaw. That, that would be mommy. Can you say uh, femoral artery? That's right. He <laughs> severed a femoral artery. Did you see that children's book? I'm sorry to interject. No, here. no. <laughs> but did you see that children's book where uh, it's something like, Daddy, why did we have to shoot Mommy? <laughs> <And it> says, <laughs> explaining, explaining the zombie apocalypse to your children. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's awesome. <laughs> that is terrific. Oh. Anyway, Luke, you were talking about some data. Speaking of depravity. Yeah. yeah, If you want to have your faith in humanity restored, and rather than talking about toddlers being totally depraved and polluted, um, I would recommend that everybody get on to our friend YouTube and look up the work of Michael Tomasello. He's at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, and he does research on not only kids but also primates like chimps and things like that. He actually was featured on the uh, the Scientific American show The Human Spark. Some of you might remember with Ellen Alda, mm-hmm. uh, but he studies the evolution of you know humans essentially in consciousness. And there's a lot of cute little videos that he has where he sets up situations in which children could are, are watching somebody who's is trying to accomplish a task. So like one of them is you're trying to load up a, a cabinet full of heavy stuff or hang clothes on a clothesline. And the person will, the, the experimenter will fake like making a mistake or dropping an item. And so the task is, will the kid notice that this person, even non-verbally without being instructed, needs help and, and spontaneously volunteer help? And sure enough, as you see in the cute videos, in all these different scenarios, the kids you know, toddlers essentially are watching this and are able to discern just from the nonverbal cues, oh, this person could use a hand and they run over and give the clothespin or whatever or help the person open the doors. And so, you know, and chimps can do some of this stuff too. I see this every day. My my daughter, I mean, she's too short to do much of anything, but when I'm washing dishes, she will try to help. She tries to mop the kitchen floor on a regular basis just because. Right. So clearly there is, uh, if you want to talk about the dual nature, yes, you can set up scenarios in which kids are selfish and they want both toys for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, but you can also set up situations in which you can demonstrate that there's an early on hardwired tendency to develop empathy mm-hmm. for other people or to discern through, again, social cues that this person would like help and assistance. And again, it's not only a human feature that chimps do that too. Sometimes, you know, if, but if it's if you dropped a banana, forget about it. You're not going to get that back. But if you drop puzzle pieces or whatever, the right. chimp will will discern just by your gestures. Give me this item, and they want to help. As you would imagine, in any social species, Thomasello's theory mm-hmm. is that that's what promotes humans being able to live together in social groups is that we have mm-hmm. an innate sense of morality mm-hmm. of, or of empathy, if you want to use that yeah. word, instead of goodness or whatever. I found some of the, the research on these mirror neurons to be interesting because they, for example, when you see somebody crying, something in your, I, I'm probably getting this wrong, but something in your premotor cortex that activates and says, okay, well, why would that person be crying? Why would they be doing that physical behavior? And it lights up in your own brain. Well, this is what I would be doing yes, if, I had my, yourself- if I was doing this behavior. This sounds like something that so, should have been on Radiolab. It's like a biological mm-hmm. basis for empathy. You, you literally do feel some of what other people yeah. feel. They, they first discovered motor neurons actually in chimp- when they're doing single cell recordings of neurons. And in chimps, they had the chimp watching another 
I think it was another chimp or another person making movements, uh, and that the chimps were not moving themselves, but this neuron specifically fired mm-hmm. when it was in situations where it was clearly, if in layman's terms, putting itself in the position of itself moving a hand, watching somebody yeah. else. What would I do that if I was moving my hand? And it turns out that that's why they call it mirror neurons is because when you are mentally reflecting what somebody else is doing motion-wise outside you. So they've extrapolated now yeah. to this, you know, mm-hmm. there's a whole gold mine now of research on could that be responsible and part of part of empathy is putting yourself in the place of another person, another you know, individual. How, how's the research coming along um, that says that God put that in the brain? <laughs> that, uh, well, now here's here's the thing to, to tie it into what Justin and Jeremy were talking about. If we have this sensus divinitatis that's imp- that's imprinted on us, wouldn't you? Ex- why would there be so much variation in this ability to do so? Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, another um, area of research, though, is people's clearly people fall on some sort of continuum of the ability. Empathize, and this is where I'm going to uh, plug one one uh, book that came out. I think is a very good example of, of science in the in the public interest is the Science of Evil by Simon Baron Cohen. So some of you might recognize the last name Baron Cohen. He is yeah. Sasha Baron Cohen's cousin. For real? Yeah. yeah. Wow. He doesn't have any sexy time, but <laughs> <My> he, <wife. laughs> but the book actually the book uh, is a very nice. He's well known. <laughs> very nice. I'm sure he. You know what? I'm sure he's probably has to be like a good sport with all the interviews. Oh, like, okay. Uh, Get the jokes over with the, with the Borat and, and Bruno. But uh, he, some of you might remember, he uh, has been cited in a research on things like Asperger's and autism spectrum mm-hmm. from the standpoint, again, of their inability to place themselves into other people's shoes. It's a lack of empathy yeah. is one of the, the hallmarks of those uh, disorders. So part of his book does talk about his research on Asperger autism spectrum people as being an example of, and, and he cites a lot of stuff on, um, on you know, the brain and the genetic research showing that, you know, what might be going on in their brains that they lack, they find it very difficult to pl- place set to put themselves into the other person's position. He also talks, though, about a more, I guess, you know, troubling part, and that is in psychopaths, their lack of empathy. Now, he distinguishes between these two by calling them, like, zero empathy, but one is zero negative, that is, you know, antisocial personality disorder is negative, but then autistic people would be zero empathy, but positive. They don't want to be cruel. Mm-hmm. They just don't get it. They don't get the subtleties. Right. They try it. to avoid human contact largely. Yeah. And so, but both of them have the commonality there of, of a lack of this, uh, of this empathic ability. Like in a sociopath, it would be, you know, you could teach them moral rules like this is killing's wrong, stealing's wrong, but they would be like, what, that's, What's that to me? What do I care if somebody else is hurt or not? It just—it's not relevant to them. Mm-hmm. So there would be a case where they would have moral knowledge but no moral feelings. And there's even cases like he talks about where uh, I think we've probably—if you have a background in in psych—you hear about these cases where we have people have that happen to them as a result of brain damage. If there's mm-hmm. areas of the frontal lobe, so like there's an area right above your eyeballs, the orbital frontal cortex, if that's damaged, many people with that damage lose that ability to have empathy. It mm-hmm. essentially turns them into kind of psychopath characters. Like Phineas Gage. Yeah, they just don't... Blew they a rod through his head and walked it off. But, but um, he wasn't the same Phineas afterwards. No, that's a famous history's first uh, frontal lobe experiment, uh, but he lost his ability to have impulse control. But some people that have damage like that, they lose the affective component of, I should feel bad for this other person. They right. just don't get it. And now we're learning, actually, with genetic and biochemical things, that there's a continuum. 
here's another thing, and, uh, and apart from gen- the geographical distribution, why would you have a male-female deficit? Why would God mm, put in yeah. that males have lower empathic ability, and this links to all the you know, hormones and such that you would imagine males have, when you have a higher testosterone level in utero, when the kid grows up, he has lower empathy. Or uh, when you have when you administer drugs like oxytocin, the, the they call it the trust drug, whatever that that people you can increase a person's ability to to trust. Well, some of the male female gaps, as the stereotype would imply, males sometimes find it harder to read emotions, mm-hmm. whereas females are more empathic because they you know they feel they project themselves more into the position of how does that person feel. A lot of that can be accounted for by by differences in brain regions. Brain scan shows that males have have smaller areas of that area of the brain. Well, right. now Luke, according to someone I was arguing with recently. Those kinds of arguments are just examples of feminism run amok. And in fact, the way mm-hmm. men behave is the normal, natural, good way, and women just have an overabundance of these other things. Yeah, well, you wouldn't you wouldn't get that from yeah. the data of the extremes when you have uh, serial killers yeah. being the majority yeah, men. Yeah, exactly. Well, if there were two desert islands to live on, I know which one that I would. <laughs> the population of the easy cry people, I could take that once in a while. If they're if they yeah. want to watch easy cry movies, I'll take that rather than the sociopath island. <laughs> you know, would be like welcome Fox to Channel. sociopath. Welcome island. to Dick Wag Island. <laughs> You're living with all these Joker types. You know, here's the pool cue. Make it quick. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what sense does it make to make this argument that God imprints us with proto morality? Mm-hmm. When you then have to explain why is there variation in that, and it's mm-hmm. linked to things that we can actually see in terms of biology, biochemistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, why would God? And then it brings but up. But we issues. have these particular biochemistries and biology because God doesn't like us as much as he likes the other people to whom he's been more clear with his census divinitatis. So it's unfalsifiable. Yeah, yeah that's exactly or, it. Or we're back to determinism again. Yeah, so. just, just another collection of data that just makes far more sense. People do things that are wrong. Well, that's because we're naturally sinful. People sometimes do things that are right. Well, that's because we have God's moral law Mm -hmm. written on our hearts. Mm -hmm. That's not explaining the data in any kind of fine resolution. You know, in science what we do is usually your hypothesis should predict something in addition to your background theory, Mm -hmm. right? It should go beyond just your background theory. It doesn't do that in the theistic case, whereas here we can explain really complex relationships and differences in the data using a naturalistic understanding. I think that's worse than a hands-off God because it implies that he's like messing around and tinkering and creating some oh, people. Yeah. Like that, you know, yeah. that's kind of why would he do that? That's almost a it's incredibly unfair. God doesn't like autistics. It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of the same thing because when you have theists arguing for God, you have people saying, "Okay, well, there's a fine-tuning argument, right? God fine-tuned things for the existence of life." Yeah, look at how. And then you have the intelligent design, yeah. which I don't know well, if people realize. But these uh, are in a bit of a tension because if he fine-tuned correctly, he wouldn't need to have to also guide biology yeah. to create uh, certain... Fine-tuning is a, is a, a working progress, you know? It's, it's... Right. And then we have things like this where apparently God wants to 
needs to also intervene uh, morally speaking, where some people yeah. he some people he places in them a more uh, awareness of, of certain moral rules. But I think there are plenty of religious people who are perfectly comfortable with the idea that God favors some people over others. I mean, that, they, that fits probably right into the you paradigm. You think that living in yeah. Grand Rapids, Michigan? <laughs> I know, right? Calvinism? Yeah. Here's the second part I want to talk about, though, and that's the view. The implications of having the view that Justin talks about, that the, the total depravity sort of Calvinism view, that has implications because also back to child rearing and, and child psychology, we have research on people. I think we've talked early in the show about some of the, the practices of more conservative Protestant parents, how they favor mm. things like more authoritarian mm. stuff like spanking. Right. But the view specifically, though, of, of a worldview, really, of, of that humans are essentially depraved and that they need correction, To that has links to this authoritarian even back we have sociological studies or anthropological I guess studies back into the 50s where they survey different cultures and you know so go into Africa New Guinea South America whatever and they rate like what kind of deities they have do they have like benevolent deities mm-hmm. that are basically you know hands off you have you have ones that you have to that are malevolent you have to placate with human hearts or otherwise they're going to and it turns out that that's related to the child rearing practices within those cultures mm-hmm. that is those cultures that raise their kids more harshly, they believe that they need to be constrained and punished and whatnot, toughen them up, they tend to have malevolent deities. The ones that have the benign deities tend to be more uh, benevolent raising their kids. So you could even, the argument I think goes the other way, that the way that you raise the kids shapes the kids' view of what the world really is like. If you get the crap beat out of you and told that you're depraved, you expect God to be a divine ass kicker, mm-hmm. really always mm-hmm. looking to judge you and punish you. Whereas if you're led to believe that you're pretty much an okay person, yeah. then God's an okay person. It's interesting when you talk about it. I can't help but think of uh, African mythologies where most of the time they have a, a supreme creator God who is not involved, who is just a very distant, not not evil, just someone who, for whatever reason, backed away from creation. And you can see that a little bit in African where where raising a child is not just the parent's job, it's part of the, the whole You should tribe. write a book called It Takes hmm. a Village. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, but it, it, it's that idea it, it, right at play there. Um, well, some of the listeners might, might remember we've talked about in the show, uh, on the show about the authoritarian about works on authoritarianism that that talk about their political views or their social views beyond just kids, and we mentioned like the work, for example, of Bob Altemeyer uh, from I think he's at Manitoba, where he's uh, he talks about like the authoritarianism, the right wing authoritarianism, and his, he developed a measure that talks that asks about the people's social political views, like do you believe that outgroup members should be punished or mm-hmm. do you believe that people should conform to an authority well there's actually work that um, doesn't ask que- that measures authoritarianism not by the person's social attitudes but by the way purely by the way that they think children should be raised uh, there was a recently some people our listeners might remember the on the point of inquiry I think it was maybe last year they had the authors on uh, Mark Hetherington and Jonathan Weiler they just recently had a book called authoritarianism and polarization in American politics they, what's curious about this book is that they – and they acknowledge the, the work of Altemeyer and other authoritarian things. But their measure was purely four questions on child rearing. That's how they measured authoritarianism. Do you believe that's more important that children should have – and then they had like the, a bipolar thing that you could rank. Children should be independent as opposed to have respect for elders. Children, should they be self-reliant versus obedient? 
Should children be allowed to be curious versus well-mannered, which is more important? And then finally, should children be considerate or well-behaved? Um, and so the, the way that the people on the surveys answered those questions was added up to give an authoritarian view of how children should be you know, raised, basically the obedience versus autonomy dimension. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that, that that measure, those four questions, correlated with better than even party identification at things like voting, all the stuff that we've talked about with authoritarianism, mm-hmm. fear of outsiders, prejudice, attitudes about women in the workplace versus at home, yada, yada. So they have this case that's jaw-dropping about how strong – that variable predicts, and, and so their argument with politics going into a political season is that now there are parties. People, you might have noticed that they were, tend to be more polarized than before. I don't know if anybody else yes. knows that besides yeah. me. But that what he what to he, be fair, there was a civil war before, so it's not like <laughs> unprecedented. The, his argument was that, that the Democrat and Republican parties actually used to be have a mixture of people who were more authoritarian and non-authoritarian. Oh, yeah. So you might remember back in the '60s that, that the Democrats were not only like urban. You're the only ethnics, one here who remembers the '60s. Luke. You, you've seen him on newsreels. Yeah, yes. <laughs> like the, the way that the South shifted from Democrat to Republican, mm-hmm. that sort of yeah. thing. But now the, their explanation for the polarization we're seeing in politics is that it's be, we're aligning more, the parties are aligning towards authoritarianism, mm-hmm. meaning that Republicans are becoming more, Democrats are becoming less. Mm-hmm. So that's why you see the shifting of people that are they're finding their party camp that aligns with their own worldview, not just mm-hmm. their opinion on like trade or unions or things like that. It's actually a worldview alignment where obedience versus autonomy sort of dimension is there. Well, that, that disturbs me because on a one-on-one match between a authoritarian willing to use violence yeah, and exactly. uh, an egalitarian willing to compromise, pretty sure the authoritarian's going to win well, out. Yeah. But, you can do but your you own absolutely experiment. see that playing out um, between the tactics of, of the two sides. Which ones prefer more – we can just rattle off. Which, which party prefers more complex, subtle messages as opposed to simple and clear ones? Democrat. Okay. okay. Which party uh, is tends to focus more on threats from outsiders? Uh, you know, you could just go down the list. Right. That's the thing about yeah. that is that you are is that the, the the parties now with this authoritarianism worldview, it basically is like almost cookie cutter. You can say mm-hmm. their position on any issue, almost any, literally any issue, with some possible exceptions, like maybe. Uh, immigration or something like that. Maybe economic yeah. stuff might. We might talked about some of this uh, political research before on the on the uh, "Don't Fear the Reaper" episode. I think is the one Don't where we talked about um, yeah uh, about terror management theory and everything. Mm-hmm. And I remember some of the critiques of those studies that were linking authoritarianism to conservative political attitudes. The critique of some of those was that there might have been criterion contamination. But it sounds like, you know, so in your survey. With Altamir scale, the items often asked about political issues, like do you believe that free speech should be allowed for deviance or things like that. Right. That's what seems so different about what you're talking about right now is this this shortened scale that just focuses on child. What does child review have to do with your opinion on on lesbians and gays? There doesn't seem to be any political question begging there, and yet it's still rendering the same results. Yeah, so I think to, to tie it back to what we originally started talking about with, with child-rearing views, I think that it's this is all of a piece. Even somebody's political views are related in some ways to whether they think kids are born depraved or full of sin and need to be corrected. That that correlates with almost every important political and social issue that you have after that. That would explain why 
people that believe that kids need to obey authority, that they need to be, you know, not rock the boat, that, wh- why those people vote on issues that they do or have, believe in the type of gods that they do, mm-hmm. as opposed to if you believe kids should are basically good and just need, you know, love and nurturance and some guidance, that would predict, uh, you know, your views on social issues that would not seem to have a lot of to do with child views. So authoritarianism and religious fundamentalism start at home. Uh, let's move on to some polyatheism. Typically, when we imagine gods and goddesses, we think of them as being eternal, ageless beings, like pre-stroke Dick Clark. <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, is, is, that, is that awful? That, that might be awful. Uh, I don't know. He had a good run. I don't know. And generally, that is the case. Sure, there are some gods who are depicted as younger, like Hermes, Artemis, and some who are depicted as more mature, Zeus, Odin, and even some who are downright elderly, like the African god Lisa, who is hard of hearing and rides your back like Yoda. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but those are kind of fixed points in time. They are that age, and they will remain that age. They're as likely to grow younger as they are to grow older. But such is not the case with the gods of the Norse. If not properly fed, the Norse gods will grow older, like Stephen Stills or Axl Rose. And that's where Eden comes in. Odin? Go to Eden if you want to find apples possessing the gift of life. That's spelled I-D-U-N-N, not E-D-E-N. But the linguistic similarity is astonishing if, of course, you pronounced Eden with an Icelandic accent and Eden with a flat American Midwestern accent, and if you take the popular, though not biblically supported, idea of apples as the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then it's astonishing. Otherwise, it's pretty much worth half a... Huh. Anyway, Eden is the wife of Bragi, the god of poetry, and she possesses the apples which the gods eat in order to maintain their appropriate ages. If they were to ever go without these apples for too long, they would start to age and decay like Clint Eastwood and start using games from undergrad acting courses to make meandering and only partially coherent attacks on the president. And no one wants to see Clint do that, let alone Thor. So, of course, no one would ever let anything bad happen to Eden and, in turn, the rest of the gods as well. Now, now let me, if, if they do grow old, can't they just cut off the head of another immortal and go back to, you know? I, that was a Highlander reference. Now, doesn't Apple a Day also keep them keep the doctor away? Or oh, is man, this you're, just step, a, you're stepping on my age. jokes. Oh, uh, yes. No one, of course, would try to mess with this system, but our old buddy, Loki. One day, Loki, whilst on a camping trip with a couple of other gods, was having trouble cooking an ox that they had killed. You see, the giant Thiazi, disguised as an eagle, was somehow using his giant mojo to keep the ox from cooking. Giants apparently are capable of many things, including extortion <laughs> and lowering the temperature of foods. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because he specialized toolkit, but uh, you know, it came in handy. It's like Batman. Just what you need on that occasion. <laughs> exactly. Um, he says to them, "Give me my fair share of the ox and I'll let it cook." So they agreed and the 
giant disguised as an eagle swooped down and ate all of the best parts, which enraged Loki, and he whacked the bird with a big stick. The eagle tried to fly away, but somehow Loki's stick got stuck, and he was dragged by the massive bird. Somehow forgetting that he could probably just let go of the stick, Mm. Loki begged for mercy. (laughs) That's that's one of the parts of the story that just doesn't go (laughs) You know what, though? Many a a kite boarder has died for the same reason. (laughs) You're you're absolutely right. (laughs) Once you're over ten feet, let the damn thing go. Uh, The eagle told him that he would only let Loki go if he promised to get him Eden's apples. Being generally feckless, Loki immediately agreed. So, after returning home from the camping trip, Loki told Eden to go to a grove of amazing apples that she that he had just found and she needed to check out. They didn't have movies back then, okay? Watching apple trees was <laughs> about the best entertainment there was to be had. Awesome. Remember to bring your apples along with you so you can compare them, said Loki. And no sooner had Eden been led into the woods by Loki than Thiazi snatched her up along with her apples and flew her back to his kingdom. Which by How the you way, like them apples? Yeah. Uh, 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 my only hope for life is that there's probably two or three other apple jokes that uh, <laughs> no. to do, so just get them over with. By the way, I don't think any of this is funny, our, our jokes. <laughs> We're just trying to beat Luke to the puns. Yes. That's, that's the thing. That is always so, the important. They're coming one way or it's another. It's just internal one-upsmanship. Yeah. Uh, th- this this uh, story of an eagle absconding with the the key to immortality is a bit of a motif in uh, many of the Indo-European uh, lang- or, uh, uh, religious groups. So uh, I'm not sure why that is, but interesting to note that it is. Apparently, thanks Justin, an apple a day does more than keeps the doctor away. <laughs> For the Norse gods. That was a terrible joke, and I I guess I should be happy that someone beat me to it. Um, (laughs) Because, lacking Eden's fruit, they very quickly began to age, like meth addicts or any U.S. president during his first term of office. Look at the pictures, people. It's sad. He's ground his teeth down to nothing. I know. When someone pointed out that Eden had been last seen heading into the woods with the god of mischief, they confronted Loki and demanded he get her back. So he borrowed Freya's cloak so that he could turn himself into a falcon and went on a recon mission. Upon finding Eden alone in Thiazi's palace, Loki turned her into an acorn so he could, in his avian form, grab her and bring her back to Asgard. Thiazi returned home just in time to see Loki absconding with his ticket to immortality, and he took off after them in hot pursuit. Meanwhile... The gods in Asgard, now as old as Jim Lair, though much more effective, managed to build a fire. God. They watched... It wasn't his fault. Uh, oh, it <laughs> so was his fault. Yeah. They've talked over him. He's the Robbie moderator. Moderate. You should have Okay, you guys. Christ. Okay, you guys. All right. That's what Lear should have done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. It's not that hard. He should have gotten Fox News and just cut the mic. <laughs> They watched as Loki pursued by the huge eagle, and in the quick moment between Loki flying over them and Thiazi flying over them, they lit the fire and torched the giant. He tumbled to the ground where the big bird was beaten to death by Mitt Romney. 
<laughs> I knew this was all just you trying to get <laughs> Entirely accidental, by the way. Well I hadn't done. even intended to do this myth until this morning, and I started writing it, and I went, oh, my God, it's right there. Did you giggle and pat yourself on the back? Yeah, I did. I really did. Uh, safely home, Eden was changed back from her nutty disguise. Uh, no, because she was a nut. Anyway. And she was free to serve up some of her world-famous immortal apple pie. We'll post a recipe on our website. The story doesn't quite end there, though, because Thiazi's daughter came seeking revenge for her father's death. That tale involves foot fetishes, testicular torsion, and is, sadly, a myth for another time. You're going to leave us hanging like that? Well, oh, fine, yeah. Fine. Hey, hey, I got I to gotta leave myself some more stories. And uh, He's the equivalent of Sherazad, uh, the one that tells the tale. Of exactly the, uh, right. Sherazad, that's her name. And, uh, you know, if you want to, in the meantime, if you want to hear a story of foot fetishes and testicular torsion, just talk to Luke about his weekend. How did <laughs> that get out? <laughs> For now, we'll leave it here with Aiden. The Norse goddess of youth, apples, and fertility, and just one more goddess worth not believing in. And now, uh, to wrap up, a props list mention here. Um, a, a first on the internet, as far as I can determine. Cute kittens? <laughs> no. Sadly, not cute kittens. Um, this is a story from Jezebel.com. Reddit users attempt to shame Sikh woman get righteously schooled, uh, written by Lindy West. And what happened is on Reddit, and if you're not familiar with Reddit, this is where trolls live. There's a huge atheist Reddit. I know. I, and made it, I made it pretty close to the top of the atheist Reddit Did one you? time. I feel bad now. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I was, very I was proud, and now I feel bad. <laughs> My experience with Reddit has has just been a lot of like hate and, and gross. But, uh, you know. Hate and gross. No, you're probably right. I, if we have fans out there who are big Reddit users. Um, Which I'm, I'm almost certain we do. Yeah, I'm sure we do. Let me know where to look um, because I have not found the good. Anyway, um. A gentleman who identifies himself by the handle European underscore douchebag. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't set the bar particularly high. Well, so I wonder if he's trolling. And <laughs> to be fair, it, in Reddit, when you sign up, the default username includes douchebag. So that's, I mean, that's just kind of <laughs> par for the territory. Um, but uh, he posted a, a picture of a young Sikh woman who had um, a fair amount of facial hair. Because, as we covered before, they do not cut their hair as a matter of religious any observance. Any of their hair, right? So if a woman has a little bit of a mustache or sideburns, then it just grows. Yeah, and, and he captioned it, I'm not sure what to conclude from this, and posted it in the funny Reddit or humor Reddit. Yeah, here's the cool part. The woman he took a picture of found out about it. And she commented. Here's what she mm. had to say. Um, she said, I actually didn't know about this until one of my friends told on Facebook if the OP, that's original poster for uh, those of you who don't know uh, fancy net speak. If the OP wanted a picture, they could have just asked and I could have smiled. However, I'm not embarrassed or even humiliated by the attention, negative and positive, that this picture is getting because it's who I am. 
Yes, I'm a baptized Sikh woman with facial hair. Yes, I realize that my gender is often confused and I look different than most women. However, baptized Sikhs believe in the sacredness of this body. It is a gift that has been given to us by the divine being, which is genderless, actually, and must keep it intact as a submission to the divine will. That includes, of course, as we talked about previously on the show, not cutting any hair, not making any other alterations. Um, and she goes on to say, by by not focusing on the physical beauty, I have time to cultivate those inner virtues and hopefully focus my life on creating change and progress for this world in any way I can. So to me, my face isn't important, but the smile and the happiness that lie beneath the face are. Really, really cool and really um, amazing response to this guy who was obviously out to try to humiliate her and and all of that. And, um, you know, again, I don't necessarily show deference to religious faith just because it's religious faith. But this is a positive thing here, I think. Um, And she says it in a very clear and and very... I could care uh, less. Way. I could care less that her religion forbids grooming, but I, uh, exactly. I do like the fact that somebody would stand up to a bully on the internet and, uh, and just say, "Hey, look, I don't, I'm not going to be intimidated by this." Yes, and that's great. Here's the uh, really uh, amazing part. This is the thing that, to my knowledge, has never happened before on the internet. The original poster, European douchebag, <laughs> responded. And apologized. Uh, not such a douchebag after all. And maybe not. <laughs> maybe we were wrong to, <laughs> to tarnish him with the brush of douchebag, even though that's his own name. Maybe he just likes that word. Yep. He, uh, he said in part, quote, I know this post isn't a funny post, but I felt the need to apologize to the Sikhs. Uh, Balpreet, who's the name of the, the young woman in the photo, and anyone else I offended when I posted that picture. Put simply, it was stupid. Making fun of people is funny to some, but incredibly degrading to the people you're making fun of. It was an incredibly rude, judgmental, and ignorant thing to post. He goes on to say, So Reddit, I'm sorry for being an asshole and for giving you negative publicity. Balpreet, I'm sorry for being a closed-minded individual. You are a much better person than I am. Sikhs, I'm sorry for insulting your culture and way of life. Balpreet's faith in what she believes is astounding. Aw. Just kind of makes you feel good to to see. We talk about bullying a lot, but here we have an example of a bully really falling on his sword and saying, I was wrong. This was not. And it sounds extremely genuine, as in he doesn't seem to be. One yeah. who might repeat such a mistake. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe realize From sometimes douchebag to the better <laughs> part of dude, bro. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes things actually do end as happy as a Glee episode ends, <laughs> yes. where the people are all admit that they're misfit toys, and we're all happy with them. And on that note, let's go out with the musical. A squirt yeah. gun who shoots jam. Uh, what? It's from the Island of Misfit Toys. Who ever heard of a Charlie in the box? That's my favorite. Island of Misfit Toys. I'm a toy. car with square wheels. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm done. <laughs> and uh, the episode. And, and we are done. Um, 
We'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, you can check out our blog at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. Uh, write some comments on the episode and let us know. Um, write about us on Reddit, too, just uh, just to see what happens there. You can um, follow us on Facebook slash Doubtcast, or you can get in fights with Justin on uh, Twitter at twitter.com slash Doubtcast. Um, really interesting discussions going on over there. If you can, uh, if you can wade through some of the crazy, it's, uh, entertaining stuff. So I'm so glad he does it. I know it. I know. <laughs> so I don't, have at to. least, at least someone's uh, doing it. So gets you followers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, certainly it does. does. They've been fun to read. Some yeah. of them. And, uh, yeah, some of them. Uh, we're also on YouTube, youtube.com slash doubtcast. Basically search anything slash doubtcast and, uh, hopefully you'll find us. Uh, But we will be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. like 50 friend requests from podcast listeners. Yeah. They they like you. But they're just what I'm not going to have them as friends. They want to interact with you. <laughs> I, my list of people that uh, I request a, a fa- accepting I a Facebook friend invite is not that big of a commitment. It, it's not it's actually not. Yeah. I don't know how to turn off the stuff so when I have too many people all that every it takes me so long to catch up on what happened during the past hour that I don't accept people anymore. <laughs> how do you keep up with the daily news feed if you have 60, 80, 100 Well, I don't feel friends? the need to read all of it. No. I just <laughs> well, I read what I find. Scanity, you have to go, okay, Chris, Dave, Chris, yeah. Dave, they're on the couch, they're moving the kitchen, they're uh, uh, over to Jeremy, and then, then Justin's debating these people. Like, and that's just you guys. Then I got people from obscure. I would go on vacation and I would get yelled at because I'd have to like open up like, oh my God, I got six hours of feed to get through. What if I miss something? Wow. You have to know how. That's how I think. What if I miss? What if something's up there that I missed? You're like those evangelicals who don't look at porn on Sunday, and then they have to catch up on. Yeah. <laughs> There's a rebound. There's uh, a price to pay.